KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW, I'm Kim Masters, and this is The Business. Dream Hampton has been kind of bored with hip hop for years. It resonated with her when she was in her 20s, but her love faded with the passage of time. Still, Hampton felt compelled to executive produce the Netflix documentary series, Ladies First. I didn't want to have this kind of sanitized version of a music and a genre that had never been clean. I didn't want it to all of a sudden get shiny in its, like, museum phase. (laughs) Dream Hampton talks to Eric Deggins about giving the ladies the spotlight they deserve and why she didn't hesitate to call out misogynists by name in the documentary series. But first we banter. Stick around. It's the business from KCRW. I am joined by my companion in banter, Matt Bellany. Hello, Matt. Hi there. So we're going to just touch on the strike. And we're in one of those moments where we are speaking as things are happening. Literally, as we speak, the heads of the studios, or at least most of them, Bob Iger, Donna Langley, David Zaslav, Ted Sarandos, are meeting with Writers Guild negotiators. And the fact that it didn't blow up right away, like they met before we are now speaking, we will take as a somewhat encouraging sign. I'm told a CNBC report that this thing is going to be wrapped up end of day as we are speaking again is a little premature, But everybody, of course, hopes that we will get to a fair resolution for all parties and that everyone in the industry can flourish. Let me pivot to another news item. Rupert Murdoch has announced that he is stepping down. He's 92 years old. This guy had a long and storied career. A lot of the story is not very positive, from union busting in London when he was running the newspapers there to the more recent problems that they've had. I'm going to reference, of course, the Dominion lawsuit, which was hugely embarrassing and revealed the inner thoughts of certain hosts that were very different from what they were spreading on Fox News. Uh, They had to settle that one for almost $800 million. It was quite an upheaval. Tucker Carlson was fired, their highest rating person. So the departure of Rupert Murdoch, I mean, it's been clear that he's been getting gradually frailer, as one would expect as a 92-year-old. His son, Lachlan, will continue to run things. So on some level, I don't think we can expect much of a change. But I hear you've gotten hold of this new Michael Wolff book about the drama at Fox, and it's kind of dishy and uh, maybe provides you with some insight on whether the departure of Rupert, in fact, means anything. He said to the staff, you know, you will hear from me, even though I've technically stepped away. So people are going to be getting some of those Rupert emails. Yeah, and it's an interesting one. Um, Obviously, the Michael Wolff book is not a very flattering portrait of the Fox News inner workings. There's a lot of dysfunction. There's sort of a leadership vacuum after Roger Ailes left. James Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch, uh, the two sons, are actively feuding with each other. James is hoping that when Rupert dies, that there will be an opportunity to take over Fox News and turn it into what he calls a, quote, force for good. I'm not sure what that means in the James Murdoch context, but it means something probably very different different. from what what Fox News is currently. And that's why, you know, when I look at this move by Rupert, as with everything in the Murdochs, you have to kind of read between the lines. And it says to me that he is trying to boost Lachlan here and set Lachlan up 
as being the overseer of the Murdoch empire, the clear heir apparent, the one that everybody should look to for the future. And that's very deliberate because when Rupert passes away, the terms of his trust are such that the shares pass equally to the four adult siblings. There's James, there's Lachlan, there's Elizabeth in London, and there's Prudence. Prudence, the daughter that no one remembers but is in Australia and is, in fact, the oldest of the siblings. Right, and she's not involved in the business. But the terms of the trust due to the divorce from his second wife, Anna, are such that they all get an equal share. So there's going to be an all-out war among the siblings to curry favor with each other and try to win over the others and try to get a majority because there's no tie-breaking mechanism. You Matt, have to what, get what is three. this reminding me of? <laughs> this is reminding me of something. I know. It's almost <laughs> like they should do a TV show about it. Yeah. But what this is, and I think this is Rupert telling the siblings, Lachlan is the guy. He's in charge. This is what I want. So get in line when I'm not here anymore. But I don't know that James and Elizabeth won't team up against Lachlan because I don't know that either of them are all in on dad's conservative, if you want to call it that, point of view. And I don't know that Lachlan has ever been considered the one likeliest to succeed Rupert. Uh, no, but he has been positioned in recent years that way. And you know there was a bit of a bake-off, so to speak, between James and Lachlan. Lachlan clearly won on that front. And Elizabeth, I think, seems to be the vote here because she has a relationship with both James and Lachlan and Prudence isn't really involved at all. So the thinking, at least in Murdoch land, is whatever Elizabeth decides, whoever she sides with, Prudence will probably go along with that. And there's the three votes that you need. So it's kind of a battle between James and Lachlan to win over Liz. And obviously, the implications of changing Fox News would be gigantic. I mean, this is a network that throws off billions of dollars in profit still. They don't seem to have much of a digital strategy for the future, but that audience and the carriage fees that that network generates still are fueling this company. And if James gets power and decides to change Fox News to the point where it alienates that Fox audience, the ratings go down, that's potentially billions of dollars in lost revenue for the family and the shareholders of both Fox and News Corp. Yeah, we have to imagine that factored into Rupert's thinking when he chose Lachlan over James. They still have the Smartmatic lawsuit coming, which is bigger than the Dominion lawsuit. So that could be, again, a major blow. And I want to ask you, Matt, since you've read this book, what is in there about the Tucker Carlson of it all? Yeah, there's a long segment of this book that's devoted to the saga of Tucker Carlson and how he got fired. And essentially, the implication is that it was not necessarily written into the contract between Dominion and Fox uh, that settled the lawsuit. But there was a seven-day period after which the settlement was announced and it needed to be filed with the court. And the Tucker firing happened six days into that period, the implication being that Dominion wanted a big head to roll at Fox or else it wasn't going to file that settlement. And they cut off the biggest head they had. They cut off the highest rated host they had. And it's very clear from the book that this was a shock to Tucker Carlson. In the call with Suzanne Scott, the CEO of Fox News, he didn't even understand what was happening at the time when she fired him. And the press release went out minutes later. Yeah, I think Suzanne Scott was worried about her own job, but she managed to survive so far. 
Uh, I hate to go back to succession because it's almost a cliche, but blood sacrifice, right? That's that's absolutely. And somebody had to take the fall. And ultimately, Viet Din, the general counsel of Fox, ultimately got fired as well, because as the book relates, he was telling the Murdochs up until near the trial that this was no problem. They were going to go all the way to the Supreme Court on this. They didn't really need to worry. And they were basically like, dude, this is almost a billion dollars we're going to have to pay. In fairness, I think to the New York Times, they had reported the role of Viet Dinh after the settlement, soon after the settlement. And I think I tweeted at that point, don't be surprised if he sees the undercarriage of a bus in the short time from now. And that's pretty much what happened. Let me turn to the changing landscape in Hollywood because there is so much going on. Sports remains one of the things that people want to watch live in real time. Fox has a FS1 channel. Uh, now we're seeing the streamers. They've started to get in. Amazon was already in with Thursday Night Football. Uh, but Max has a lure. They're, they're baiting the hook to get sports fans in on the streaming service. Yeah, Warner Discovery, which obviously owns Turner, which has a lot of sports properties like the Major League Baseball playoffs and NBA games and March Madness, they are going to offer sports on Max. It's going to be free starting in October, which is a big sports month. And then you're ultimately going to have to pay $10 a month on top of your Max fee to get sports. But this is an interesting development because it's yet another chipping away of the cable bundle because people subscribe to the bundle mostly for sports. And this is yet another thing you can get on streaming and you do not have to have your bundle. And one by one, these sports properties start falling and it's going to hit a tipping point where people realize that most of what they want, they don't have to have a cable subscription for. Yes, and that will be a big shift for the entire industry, part of the reason we're seeing this unrest. And, and that particular issue was central to the dispute between Charter and Disney, and Charter ended up with the right to put Disney Plus in some of its tiers. So that's kind of like the interim keeping the bundle alive step before Armageddon. Yeah, it's interesting what Warner Discovery had to do to get the right to do this because I'm sure the cable providers didn't love that Warner Discovery was taking the most valuable property in the channel bundle and putting it on streaming as well. I mean, this is all coming down to a D-Day when Disney decides to take ESPN over the top. Bob Iger at Disney has not said when that's going to happen, but the day when ESPN is available without a cable subscription is probably the day when the bundle hits the point of no return. It's not going to disappear, of course, but it will be significantly harmed and there could be a downward spiral from there. And then we'll have new bundles to figure out. I'm just going to say that I hope next time we convene that we will have labor peace in Hollywood. That may be hoping too much, but certainly it would be the best thing for everybody. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's Matt Bellany, founding partner of Puck News. Regular listeners to the business may remember our 2020 interview with Dream Hampton about problematic depictions of police on TV shows. We also interviewed her about her Peabody award-winning documentary series, Surviving R. Kelly, which revealed the horrifying reality of the R&B singer's criminal conduct. Hampton is back today to talk about executive producing Ladies First, a Netflix documentary series that sets out to be the definitive history of women in hip-hop. Black women are crushing it in hip-hop right now. Dominating the charts, being the ultimate influences of the culture. We all winning at once in different aspects. 
There's so many fire women right now. Like, what? None of this came easy. We have come through a lot. We have stood back up. And we'll always keep standing back up. Eric Dickens spoke with Dream Hampton about Ladies First and the current state of hip-hop. So I got to say, I mean, I was interested in Ladies First, but when I saw your name amongst the executive producers, I said, okay, now I got to watch this. So <laughs> I don't know if it feels like a, an extra layer of sort of responsibility that your name brings credibility to these kind of projects now, but it certainly does. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I'm trying to choose carefully and this is one I resisted. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because I heard, yeah, when they first approached you, you weren't sure you wanted to do this, right? No, I was sure I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I've spent mm. a good 20 years trying to like get people to stop associating me with hip hop <laughs> because I don't <laughs> have a deep connection. I did in the last century when I was in my 20s. I haven't had one for a long time. And I just know that there are um, young journalists who are super passionate about it. And that was my kind of like advice to the team at Culture House. Carrie and Ray came to me before they set it up at Netflix when it was just an idea. Of course, I had lots of notes and things that I think that they should cover. But I just thought that I'm just not in it like I once was. And there are people who are. But I, it turned out that I did have something to contribute. And that was just a little bit. <laughs> just mostly, yeah, to bring, I, I directed episode three. And so, That's as all. you can see, I brought the darkness. But that was always my <laughs> note. Like, this team was so young and, and so like excited to tell a triumphant story about women in hip hop. And I'm like, eh. Well, see, now that's what I thought when I first heard that you were hesitant to sign on. I thought maybe you were concerned that it wasn't going to be incisive enough. Yeah. I mean, I think that growing up in Detroit, I grew up when Motown was in its review stage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you could have like the Temptations, but only one Temptation is <laughs> or the four tops. <laughs> right. it, it was anniversary time. You know, I can vividly remember as a kid, like the 25th anniversary of Motown event where Michael Jackson did the moonwalk, like being like this major like moon landing event, right? Yeah. Um, in my household. And so the idea that hip hop is now like in its amber phase where we're like looking back <laughs> on it, you know, and and it was the same thing. Like you didn't hear about the drama in the Supremes, you know, when it was time to like do the 25th anniversary of Motown. <laughs> but I was thinking about that as we were making it about the fact that, you know, Method Man and Mary J. Blige, this you're all I need to get by. And sampling Tammy Terrell, who died from intimate partner violence, um, for those who know, like partnered with another Motown star. And so that's what I didn't want to happen. I didn't want to have this kind of sanitized version of a music and a genre that was rarely sanitized. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was rarely right. clean. I didn't want it to be shiny. <laughs> this genre that had never been clean. I didn't want it to all of a sudden get shiny in its, like, you know, museum phase. <laughs> Coming up after the break, Dream Hampton talks about why she didn't feel any hesitation to criticize abusers in hip-hop and name names in the Netflix documentary series Ladies First. You're listening to The Business from KCRW. 
KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. This is The Business, and I'm Kim Masters. Eric Deggins is talking with Dream Hampton about executive producing the Netflix documentary series Ladies First, which puts a spotlight on the key role of women in hip hop. It's interesting because, I mean, you point out during Ladies First that there was sanitation going on of certain kinds of things. And the first episode almost kind of feels like a primer on uh, women in hip hop. And I'm wondering... What do you think people don't understand or didn't understand maybe before this docuseries came out about what women contributed to hip hop's genesis and its ongoing success? I mean, I learned so much, you know, it wasn't until reading Kathy on Dolly's book that I even knew the story about Cindy Campbell, like this anniversary that we just celebrated that marks the 50th anniversary of hip hop. It's not a completely arbitrary day. It means something. And it is the day when in the Bronx on Sedgwick Avenue, Cool Herc DJed a party and MCs rapped. You know, there had always been dancing. There had always been B-girls and B-boys. But in her book, God Save the Queens, she tells the story that, no, that party was actually his sister's party, Cindy Campbell. (laughs) (laughs) And she got her little brother to DJ. She was doing a back to school kind of fundraiser for herself to get a a school wardrobe. (laughs) And she booked the rec room in her public housing building. And and that is like what's considered the birthday or night of hip hop, right? And Cindy is completely erased from that story. And so learning that alone speaks to how not just there we were from the beginning as an audience, but Cindy now calls herself hip hop's first promoter, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right? And well, she should. (laughs) Exactly. And so, you know, there are whole industries that have sprung up around this kind of organic thing that women were doing from the beginning. And obviously, and and I say obviously, but, you know, once you get a couple of generations away from an origin story, it gets lost. That's so easy to do, right? To lose the thread on something. And so Sylvia Robinson, like retelling that story that when Sarita Gates says we would not have an industry, like a hip hop music industry, That looks like it does if it weren't for Sylvia Robinson putting out the Sugar Hill Gang, this crossover song that, you know, irked a lot of like New York's early rappers because it was like so crossover. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But so accessible. I can tell you as a kid living in Detroit that I totally understood every one of those lyrics. (laughs) Of course. Um, I was in Indiana, but same thing. Same exactly. Thing. Totally accessible. 
And so that's Sylvia Robinson. It's not Russell Simmons. It's not Rick Rubin. It's not Puff or P. Diddy or Love or whatever he's calling himself these days. It's not (laughs) Dame Dash and Jay-Z. Like the first like, you know, business person in hip hop is Sylvia Robinson, this woman. Yeah, yeah. So I was a pop music critic at a newspaper in New Jersey in the 90s. I actually went to that Source Awards ceremony where Shug Knight accepted an award and then dissed Diddy or whatever he's calling himself. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and everybody was, had no idea what was going to jump off. And I only say that to say that I remember a time when even giving certain rappers a negative record review could be seriously dangerous. They might come after you physically. And here you've created a docuseries where you're seriously incisive, you're talking about a lot of situations where women were erased or assaulted and naming the male rappers who did it to them. And I'm wondering, has something changed where there's room to have this kind of criticism without so much fear or has it changed? Or Is there concern about bringing this up now and how some people might react to it? Well, it hasn't changed for me. I named Dr. Dre when he assaulted D Barnes, you know, back in 1990, 91. And then Dre went on, you know, with Eminem to make a record that made a joke about the fact that he assaulted D Barnes. If you've seen episode three, you'll see that NWA went on MTV news and um, said that she should get beat down again. So in some ways, this is all in the public record, you know? So I, I certainly put it in the record you know, back when I was a 20-year-old journalist, and then Eminem put it on record record, you know? So that's that. Tory Lanez is currently in jail for shooting Meg the Stallion. So there wasn't any hesitation on naming names. I mean, a part of like being partly raised by this music, I'm old enough that I had other musical influences. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Cure, Depeche Mode, you know, Michael Jackson and Prince, right? Of course. Um, I didn't grow up on a 100% hip-hop diet, but even Prince, you know, that fearlessness is what I want to get to, you know, that fearlessness that they named names. And so there was never a, a question of whether or not we were going to name names. And even back then, I never had a fear. And you're right. I'm not saying that it wasn't like dangerous and that there weren't actual lives lost and there weren't journalists who were assaulted. But I can't imagine doing the work that we do in fear, you know. There you go. There you go. But besides, you know, any kind of physical danger, I remember from those days too a hesitancy to criticize hip hop because you didn't want to look like you were on the side of people who were using the criticisms of rap to criticize black culture and to criticize black people. And it also feels like maybe we're kind of past that too. Are we are we past that too? Do we feel a little freer to be honest? about where yeah. the, the art has fallen short? I, I felt that way again back in the 90s. Uh, it was such an insular conversation. It was I, such... I don't think you realized like, how pioneering you were. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, there were a lot of people who were not that fearless back then. Yeah, I mean, I think that what was resonant about hip-hop back then in particular was how it never reached for the euphemism. It wasn't, I mean, there were metaphors, sure, and all kinds of, you know, allegorical tales. I think a Slick Rick, right? But there was also like this literalism, this naming of names that I thought was essential. And 
I don't think of it as a culture. I know that it's called a culture often. I was at a magazine for 18 months, the source that, you know, was a big part of codifying that conversation about it being a culture. I think that culture requires food, but whatever, I'll let the anthropologists have that conversation. But even <laughs> as a genre of music, even as a genre of music, the fearlessness was everything to me and the truth telling was everything to me when it could muster that, you know? Um, when it wasn't like hiding behind its own posturing. And it was important, you know, particularly for the women who were writing about it, myself, Joan Morgan, Karen Good Marable, um, back then she was Karen Good, Karen Mayo, Gina Lester. It was always important for us to take those issues on, the posturing, the misogyny, um, the cartoonish misogyny often, um, you know, the hypocritical nature. I mean, I don't have a problem with Snoop, you know, I actually love Snoop. You know, he called me about sometime during the pandemic and asked me to do him a favor I couldn't do. But, um, <laughs> you know, we have him in there being a hypocrite. We have him, you know, giving some interview about how women shouldn't be making songs like WAP. And our editors were able, <laughs> Pasha, <laughs> Princess, and our, they, we had this great post team, also women, and they were able to, you know, find this clip of this song where Snoop is saying the exact same thing that Meg and Cardi are saying. And the hypocrisy is that the problem is when women say it, you know, when they have like bodily autonomy and they're in charge of, of the nasty. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So I, I heard initially that it wasn't the easiest thing to find a TV outlet that would be willing to even take on this docuseries. And I was wondering, do you have any insight into whether that was true and, and why it might have been tough to find somebody before Netflix got involved? You know, I'm not sure how many places culture, I told Culture House, no, thank you. And then they came back and said, all right, we set up with Netflix. Would you please reconsider? And then I was like, okay, I'll do this. Uh, okay. <laughs> so I don't know what the journey was with Culture House and pitching, but I do know that Jamila at Netflix, when she first started at Netflix, her dream was to do this project. So we had a huge ally in Jamila Farwell at Netflix. And she was in our corner throughout this process, which was protracted. We began shooting during COVID. So it took three years instead of a year. <laughs> wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that also struck me, it, your own career has covered so many bases and encompassed so many different kinds of journalism and storytelling. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your early roots in documentary. What initially sort of got you interested in this work? And my sense was that, you know, this was something you were looking into while you were also working as a journalist covering the industry, right? Well, yeah, I was in film school. I came to New York to go to Tisch School of the Arts, where I was a double major in cinema studies and UGF-TV. And so my next project is actually me looking back at my archives from 93, being like embedded wow. in that what would known to be, yeah, it's called I Used to Love You is our working title. And so... um it's evidence that I've always been shooting. And that was actually for my documentary class. You know, I consider myself a filmmaker. The first thing that I did after film school was a scripted short called I Am Molly. It went to Sundance. And when it comes to documentaries, I usually find myself in the documentary space because of this activism gene that I have that I can't turn off. There's usually some story that I feel like really needs some advocacy and documentary feels, you know, 
not that different than a particular kind of advocacy. And that's how I've used it. And that's how I got into the space. It's my, not so much my journalist bone or gene, but my activist gene has me doing um, documentaries. But it's not the only thing I want to do. I really admire the career of someone like Liz Garbus, you know, who, when given a chance, really knocked it out of the park, you know, directing episodes of Handmaid's Tale and different things. And even though, you know, Mm. the industry likes to think of her until that moment as a documentary filmmaker. But the industry thinks of you as as one thing until you do the other thing. And then they have to think of you that way. (laughs) But as artists, we have to think of ourselves. We have to know who we are and what we want to do and just work to do that and endeavor to do that. That makes so much sense. Dream Hampton co-directed and executive produced Ladies First. The documentary series is now streaming on Netflix. Dream Hampton, thank you so much for joining us on The Business. Thank you. And that's The Business. Joshua Farnham produced and edited today's program with help this week from John Meek, who mixed the show. You can stream The Business as well as other great KCRW shows on kcrw.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kim Masters. I'll see you next week on The Business. You're tuned into KCRW during our fall pledge drive. Donate right now. You'll get a whole year of member perks, including member-exclusive events, invitations to intimate artist sessions, plus the option to send meals to those in your community when you choose the food bank in place of a mug or t-shirt. Set it up now at kcrw.com give. If you enjoy the banter, why not throw us a tip? Any donation amount makes you a member and gets you perks. Think about it this way. You listen all the time for free. So please give. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.